Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast this week is the Chief Medical Officer of a major children's hospital focusing on the care of children with long-term illness or those recovering or rehabilitating from a major injury. It is clear from our conversation that it takes a particularly special individual to lead an organisation that deals with these complex medical conditions in a healthcare system that is designed primarily to manage patients with acute illness. Here to tell us his story is Dr Nick Holkamp. You're very welcome to this conversation, Nick. I'm delighted, given that you're a CMO of a very important hospital in the US, that you've managed to find the time for us to connect. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this, and we love to find ways to get the word out. Initially, I noticed that you are the CMO, but I also know that you are a medical doctor. So let's start our conversation there. When did you decide to become a doctor, and what was your path into healthcare? It was a little bit passive. I liked science and biology and psychology always thought of myself as empathic and and other human-centered. I did well in organic chemistry, and my father said, take a look at that, and ended up applying to medical school, getting in, still felt a little bit like a fish out of water. But uh, when I experienced pediatrics during my third year of medical school, I knew I'd found my thought. After that, when I finished residency in pediatrics, I worked as a hospitalist for about nine years in general pediatrics, and then had this opportunity to join Rankin-Jordan. And I've been there 23 years, and it's now my life's work and what I feel like, in retrospect, I was meant to do. What was it about pediatrics in third year med school that attracted you? Because essentially, you've given your life to pediatrics ever since. Kids are fun to work with. And in medicine, they are generally resilient, by nature playful, they don't hold a grudge, and they really tend to get better. I think of uh, one of my favorite treatments is benevolent neglect. If you let a child do what they would choose to do when they're not feeling well, generally they will eventually get better. And that was as opposed to, I had recently experienced my ro- uh, rotations in psychiatry and OBGYN and surgery. Boy, I can tell you, I just wouldn't have felt comfortable in any of those fields. And then it was the people in pediatrics, the colleagues and mentors who were like-minded and saw what I saw and the potential of children to get better and recover and and have their whole lives in front of them. I felt like I could really make an impact there. That resonates with many of us who do different fields in medicine. I I similarly fell in love with my patients in primary care. The thing about pediatrics, though, interested in your perspective on this, kids, when they get sick, get sick quickly and go down very quickly from being relatively well. It's a pretty scary field in some ways. What was your take on this? Is it that you wanted to be with very sick kids or did you want to care for children much later when they were making their recovery? That has 
have evolved over the course of my career, residency and training is really all about acute care and acute care pediatrics. What people think of as a pediatrician in the office is a small subset. And really what we focus on in training and in acute care settings is, I, I my shorthand is our first and most important job is to keep the baby alive. You're right. They can go downhill in a hurry and all resources are brought to bear to avoid the worst possible outcome, which is a small child succumbing and not surviving for their family and, and their future. And I think what's evolved for me is medicine has done a really good job of that. And in the 40 years since I began training, most of the kids I now take care of would not have survived when I started and are alive now because of the miracles of modern medicine and that intense amount of energy and resources that's devoted to the tiniest, sickest, uh, most fragile patients. So from my perspective now and how I've evolved to taking care of more complex patients is we've done that keep the baby alive part really well. What we sort of have a blind spot about is now what? What do we do with this child that we've sustained with artificial tubes and medicines and feedings and in the austere intensive care settings, especially I'm talking now about the premature infants who struggle to survive from the very moment they're born. What are we doing about letting them develop and grow and actually fulfill the potential of being a full functioning human being if we ignore the fact that their brains now need input all the time and need uh, stimulation so that they can realize their full potential. So that's how I've sort of evolved from the acute side to a more, let's see what we can do to help the child recover in a more complete way and, and for the rest of their lives. Arguably, that is the toughest part of medicine because you're right. When the child is critically ill, when an adult is critically ill, healthcare seems to respond beautifully. You, 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 see, you can watch this on television. We've all seen the ER episodes that the machines are pinging and blood tests are being done and scanners are being fired up and all the rest of it. But when it comes to somebody who has a long-term illness, healthcare has not performed equally well and I'd love to explore your experience of this because I think your institution in particular seems to be doing this well. What is the secret? I worry that a big part of the problem is the mixed incentives. And I would say in some cases, incentives that are not well aligned with that whole child and whole family approach. What is rewarded, at least in, in the United States, in our healthcare system is, as you said, the acute, urgent, emergent, high intensity, what garners the greatest revenue for hospitals and healthcare systems, their ERs, their ORs, their intensive care units, their very costly equipment, as you've mentioned, the scanners and the x-ray machines and the lab equipment what is not well reimbursed, quite frankly, and therefore not 
given the importance I believe it deserves is the rest of the recovery, and especially in pediatrics, where that's the whole point. The whole reason you did all this in the first place was to get to that point where they could then pursue a normal life. Somewhere I've heard you say that the three things that you do is offer better care with excellent outcomes with lower costs. How do we do this? Given all that you've said that it's not reimbursed, it's not necessarily rewarded, and it's not regarded as quote-unquote sexy. We have evolved in a pretty unique environment in our community and in our state where there was this glaring need for transitional care for medically complex children without any capacity. And so we were able to develop partnerships with upstream referral sources who saw the benefit of a downstream option not home because many of these kids can't go home. And the whole hospital has been built on a cost-effective framework of we're not going to compete, we're not going to build things that are designed to generate revenue. We have no lab equipment. We have no x-ray machines. We don't have an OR, ER, or an ICU. We have care space and invest most of our insurance dollars into bedside care. And I say bedside almost tongue-in-cheek because our whole goal is not to have kids in bed. But the the, the frontline staff is where we've invested. And so it's less costly than the high-tech environment. It gives kids a more child-friendly and nurturing environment. And I think, and we're really trying hard to prove with data and research to say that this does produce genuinely better outcomes. It doesn't just feel better to the kids, it makes them better. You clearly still love children because you said at the start of this conversation that kids are resilient, they're playful, they don't hold a grudge. I love that. And they tend to get better. I love that even more because it is true, not just of kids, but of human beings generally when they're treated with respect. Where do you think this comes from? You've talked in other places about patients and providers working together. Is that the secret or is there something else in the mix? We in healthcare tend to not ignore, but uh, give short shrift to the patient's contribution to their own recovery. We in healthcare, us doctors and nurses and bedside providers and, and even healthcare administrators, we know what it takes to do healthcare. So just let us take care of you. We will protect you and we'll figure out what's wrong with you and we'll fix you. But if you think about that, that implies for the patient that they are dependent and they are defective or broken in some way and that they don't have any control in their own health. They are dependent on health care for them to get better. We've just flipped that and said, let us give you an opportunity to see how much better you can get. We'll support you every step of the way. We'll give you all the healthcare support and the medications and the therapy and the places and equipment to do that. But how much better you get really is ultimately up to you. 
And that's true for infants and toddlers and school age kids and adolescents and young adults and certainly for adults too. If you let people take ownership of their own well-being, they will choose to be well. How do we get the patient, whatever their status, whether it's an infant or a child or an adolescent, how do we get them to take ownership? What does that conversation look like? How do you frame this in a way that they can understand what you're trying to do and engage with you? Well, for kids, and uh, of course, pediatricians are often uh, likened to veterinarians because you can't really have an intelligent conversation with a six-month-old or even a two-year-old. For us, it's about assuming that the default position for a child is to play, to learn through playing, to grow and mature and develop and get stronger and socialize and get smarter through play. I don't have to tell them, hey, you need to get better so you go play. I just create play spaces and make it possible for them to get there. And, and it's miraculous. Our whole philosophy is called care beyond the bedside. You do not get better lying in bed waiting to get better. Uh, our slogan is the more you do, the more you can do. You don't do much lying in bed. So every day our priority is getting kids, little kids often, but the whole age spectrum and regardless of their dependence on technology, up and out of bed and into play spaces and therapy spaces out of the building. And this is regardless of their dependence on technology. If they've got a tube to breathe and a tube to feed them and a machine to breathe for them and a monitor to make sure they're okay, all that goes with them wherever they go. And then they get to play and they get better. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. I said to you at the start of this conversation that what we wanted to do is understand your background because that ultimately leads us to understand your work. It sounds as if, and to me now, that you understand kids and that's what makes the work effective. Understanding kids means you didn't have to say, hey kids, let's go and play because this will help you to get better. You just provide a circumstance in which they are able to do exactly that. So let's drill down a little bit more into that. So you've got a child who's in bed, who is making a recovery. What does that look like? How do you get your team on that page? How do you get them to enact the philosophy that you've just expressed? I think we're running upstream against conventional hospital wisdom and conventional hospital architecture and design and efficiency how and why are hospitals designed the way they are? They're designed for the benefit and efficiency of doctors and nurses to get to their patients. And where are patients in hospitals? They are in bed in their rooms. So the whole building is designed around, no, beds are for sleeping and care. Otherwise, you are up out of bed, ideally out of your room. And even better yet, you're off the care unit in therapy spaces and play spaces because 
that's what will be most effective. And so the staff has seen that with their own eyes. It makes such sense intuitively. It's a positive feedback loop actually with the staff. And you know how high the burnout rate is within healthcare, nurses, doctors, and all healthcare providers. There's passion and joy, and it's challenging because these kids are so complex and so sick in many ways, but they see the energy that giving them these opportunities creates within these kids and their their caregivers and families too, and have pride in how they're contributing to helping these kids get better. You must have a very special group of people working with you. And I have no doubts that that is the case because it's testament to the outcomes that you achieve. How do you select your staff? How do you select people who are on that page? Because as you say, they're trained in a system where the institution is designed for, the con- for their convenience. It's like going into a garage. The ramp exists to put the car on the ramp. It doesn't exist there for the purpose of driving the car around or, or any other purpose. The, the garage is there as a space. The hospital is there as a space for the engineer to work on. But you've turned it on its head and you've said, actually, the car, if you want to put it that way, will get better if you allow it to drive around the yard. How do you get the engineers, how do you get the doctors and the nurses and the allied health staff into that team and understanding that philosophy? Quite frankly, since this has been an evolution over my 23 years there at least, a lot of it was blind good luck and uh, attracting people who naturally had that affinity for I'm not so concerned about seeing more patients faster or uh, generating more income or doing the latest, greatest test procedures or interventions. It's, I want to connect and feel valued in that patient's recovery and even day to day. Nurses who are perennially and forever in short supply I think that's the hook. We are in competition in our community with literally dozens of hospitals and major health systems. Nurses can go anywhere. And I think the advantage we have, not salary, is this is an unusual way to apply your skills. And then you get to see it and have that feedback. Again, They've sort of been self-selected, and I've been lucky enough to get the benefit of finding people. Our medical staff has exceedingly low turnover. We've probably got among seven doctors, probably close to 100 years of Rankin-Jordan experience. And that's telling that the team loves what they do and sees the impact and benefit and knows that they're not going to be able to practice medicine in this particular way uh, just about anywhere else. Your honesty, your modesty is a breath of fresh air. You talk about it being blind good luck, but I suspect there's more to the story than that. And the reality is that you've attracted people who have a vocation and whose vocation hasn't quite been knocked out of them over the years of training. 
many of us doctors lose our vocation because we are become institutionalized in many ways and we, we, we start behaving as the institution would like us to behave. Your institution does not encourage that. It encourages people to be creative, to be playful, to be problem solvers in a way that achieves the best results. What brings you the most joy as you look back on these 23 years of your service to that institution? I have giant letters on my, the, my office wall that, in bright fire engine red that say YES. And for years, I've been sort of a little bit made fun of. Go ask Dr. Holkamp, he'll say yes. But it is a find a way to say yes to kids who haven't had the right opportunities to succeed and recover that has, I think, let the innovative and creative juices evolve and flow in, in the organization. Yes, that's going to be a challenge. We've never done that before. Never had a patient with these particular combination of circumstances because 10 years ago they wouldn't have survived, so we didn't need to know how to do that. And so that's fostered this creative and innovative approach. And the outcomes, I wish we were part only for this reason of a bigger institution where we had the bandwidth and wherewithal and resources to do more real science. We've begun to make inroads. We're not affiliated with any academic setting, but we recognize the importance of data and outcomes that are ultimately reproducible to demonstrate that, as I said before, not just a good idea, but actually of real benefit. The best way I think in our setting are uh, to show our benefit are going to be sustainability of health downstream of our level of care. Once they do get home, it will be in little incremental measurements of developmental recovery for the smallest kids who are most at risk for significant delays. And, and we're doing a lot of work in those areas to say, is this having a genuine impact? I think it's more than just a good idea. I think it's uh, the right thing to do. And when we can show that with numbers, I think we'll even have more of a uh, more influence in how this kind of care should be delivered. It's extremely unusual, Nick, to hear a leader talk about the right thing to do. That's not the phrase that you often hear. You often hear it's a, it's a profitable thing to do or it's a thing that I'm expected to do or it's the thing that I've been trained to do. It's so unusual that I want to really understand it. You talk about the right thing to do. Where does that come from? Where in your background do you think that the desire to do the right thing has got you to the point where in a leadership position, you are exercising that to such great effect. That was ingrained in me, my childhood and parents, be kind and show up and do the right thing. And that's always been my nature. And when I think almost accidentally by convergence, when I had this opportunity 23 years ago to start at that point part-time at Rankin-Jordan, the founder, Mary Rankin-Jordan, in her letters had a recurrent phrase that said, consider the children first in all you do. 
And it's so simple and yet it's so profound to say, don't do it on the basis of what makes the most money. Don't make decisions on the basis of how it benefits the hospital or the providers of care. Every decision should be based on what serves the children first and foremost. And that's the essence in our environment of doing the right thing. And struggle sometimes with my fellow administrators and the board of trustees. By and large, though, they are in the same frame of mind. And I think it's part of what sets our setting apart. Again, we've had great good fortune and combination of circumstances that have put us in a position of stability uh, in a very unstable healthcare environment. But I think it's the payoff for just responding to the community needs, the needs of this population of complex children, and taking their perspective and what is in their best interest as the top priority in every major decision. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. I think we have to acknowledge that good fortune certainly played its part, but I want to make some other comments, and that is that the seeds of your career clearly fell on fertile soil. I'm actually delighted that your founder has Irish heritage, because apparently it is true that the Irish have contributed more to the well-being of the world than many, than most other countries, which is fantastic to hear. But that's my little boast. You talk about being kind, but you never mentioned being brave because you will have had to be brave. And I bet you have to be brave every single day in steering the course in this direction, the course that says we're going to be different, we're going to work with people, and we're going to take the risks when those risks are necessary. Where do you find the energy? Where do you find the inspiration? Uh, Talking now to junior doctors and to medical students. You make decisions. You take care of patients who don't really have good options. You find ways to say yes. You get into scary situations. You work through and often have good outcomes at the other end, and you get reinforcement for that by the folks who sent you those patients, by the parents who had no good options and very little hope that their child would recover. And it's energy that self-reinforcing. But where I've come to now, I'm a little more outspoken and, and tell medical students, I give medical students tours pretty regularly, I say, don't just accept that the way you're being taught to do things is the only way to do them. And in fact, do yourself a favor and at every opportunity, question the conventional wisdom and say, is this really the best we can do? I'm so frustrated right now, Moyes, about my own colleagues who know every day, they know, they walk past the beds of these kids that they've saved their lives and they've nurtured them from tiny little premature infants to where they're big enough to be toddlers and and, and eventually hopefully get out of the hospital. 
but they're still dependent on care and they walk by these beds and these rooms every day and say, yeah, I wish we could do more because they're just stuck. We have to do better than that. We have to acknowledge that we're not doing enough now for their development and their brains and their psyches and their social abilities by letting them sit in bed all day. So don't just take it as a matter of fact that that's all we can do for them. We're stuck. There's no good options. My personal mission is to show them it's really not that hard and look at the benefit. Look what you're able to do for the future of this child if you just don't make them sit in bed all day while they, quote, get better. I love that you ask people to question the conventional wisdom because we don't do that enough in medicine. And as a consequence, many junior doctors now and increasingly younger and younger physicians sadly are burning out. And they're burning out because they cannot sustain the passion for what they did. They went in to be helpful and they find that they're a cog in a machine. How do you sustain this? How do you avoid the situation where you might become cynical about the future? The situation I'm in now is unique and unusual, and I'm very grateful that I'm in the spot I'm in. I have colleagues who do more of the frontline work these days than I do, and they live half of their professional time in this is hard and overwhelming. And if I have to deal with one more impossibly sick child whose parents don't get it, I'm going to quit. And the other half on, I never thought this child would recover, much less get out of the hospital and thrive with their family. That's miraculous. And I helped that happen. And that sustains me. You, you have to find a way to, to find a balance. I'm not quite happy with that. I'd love to know the secret of Nick Holkamp. How do you keep yourself? I'm talking here about more personal things. How do you look after yourself? Are you a, an exercise fiend? Are you a meditator? What is it that keeps fires burning bright within your own soul? I have a, a very loving spouse, wife, who is way smarter than me and keeps me on my toes. And her own passion is relationships. She's a relationship therapist. We exercise together three times a week just to make sure we're not uh, doing ourselves harm along the way. And I like to play golf and try not to take myself too seriously. But I really think I have come to be able to separate and disconnect and not have the world's weight on my shoulders when I leave work. And that probably was harder earlier on. And when I was more directly responsible for just about every child in the hospital 23 years ago, I was the only doctor and I was it. And if there was a bad outcome, that, that left a mark. And so almost in a self-protective way, I have to say, I, I hesitate to blame patients. I think that's a common mistake in healthcare. It's the patient's problem. They're not doing enough for their own health. They don't exercise or they're not trying hard enough to get better. But 
I've come to say, if there's a bad outcome, unless we really screwed up, that was this child's life course, and we did our best to have them live the best life course that was possible. The fact that it didn't work out the way we hoped is not because we didn't do our jobs. Thank you. That's a little bit better. I'm a bit happier with that answer. So what's your golf handicap? Oh, I see. I don't play enough to keep one. I'm in the, you know, maybe low teens. How about that? <laughs> I'm getting better. I'm practicing. I have no doubts. We're getting better every day in every way. I wanted to now ask you how our listeners can engage with you and engage with the work that you're doing and support that, the work that you're doing. Is there somewhere that they can look up the details? And is there some way that you would particularly appreciate their support? I think one of my goals is to get the word out. And that's why I so much appreciate this opportunity, because we are almost invisible, even within our own community. I, I may have mentioned that our patient population, children with medical complexity, constitutes about 1% of pediatric patients. So 99% of families don't have any idea what we do or why we exist. So getting the word out, our website is uh, a good source of a beginner's look at Rankin-Jordan. I did a TED Talk in May that I hope will make it out uh, onto the airwaves here before too long. And we're on the cusp of publishing. And it's really the medical community, your audience, that I hope to just catch their ear a little bit and have them understand that we might actually, in our little tiny crucible of care have an impact on how children with medical complexity are cared for more widely. And however that word gets out, I have no proprietariness over this or, or need to get rich on this um, care model, but I think it has merit and it's worth paying attention to. And if I can find the right folks to amplify that message, that would be the most help. But I think the website, and I'm happy to uh, communicate with anybody directly, email, however, because I, I love the, the exchange of ideas. Well, you proved another theory right for me, and that is that pediatricians are the nicest people. It's fantastic that you're exemplifying that you can be a doctor and make an impact and be a good doctor leader because often, or we don't particularly play the roles well when it comes to leadership, you're clearly doing a, an amazing job. We will make sure that all of the details that you've mentioned are in our show notes. And I think you, you are absolutely, Dr. Holkamp, an inspiration to all of us. Thank you very much. I so appreciate you saying that, Moyes. It's been a real pleasure talking with you today and again for giving me this opportunity. So thank you very much. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.